right after Paul talks about walking in the spirit, pursuing the things of the spirit, having a spiritual mind, being spirit led. He says in context, he says, and you will suffer for it. Have you ever heard the the statement? No good deed will go unpunished. All right. Well, that comes straight out of the Bible here where it is so true that the spiritual Christian, the Christian in this room that is walking and living in the spirit instead of in the flesh, they won't be walking on clouds. They won't be able to walk on water. They won't have money flowing into their pockets. They will not be prosperous. If you are spiritual, you will suffer. Now, that is turning on the head of most of Christianity. Most Christianity says, do you want your life to be better? Do you want to be successful? Now, I believe this. You do things God's way, you are better off. But that does not mean you're not going to go through storms and lose just about everything. But the things that matter, the things that can't be shaken, will remain in your life that God has given you. So, the truth is, you and I will experience not just suffering, but persecution just for following Jesus, just for doing the right thing. The context of these scriptures is presenting a fact that when a Christian walks in the spirit and pursues spiritual things, and when they pursue God, they will experience, I got news for you, you will experience pain and physical suffering and loss. Read Job. Job was not an ungodly man. His friends imagined that how can such bad things happen to you, Job? except that there must be some sin in you. And there was none. He was a godly man. He was a spiritual man. And yet such trauma happened to him. Follow the lives and the deaths of the apostles of Jesus Christ. They didn't die retiring in the Mediterranean. They didn't live uh, opulent lives. They suffered and they died, sometimes horrible deaths. And yet they were spiritual. They were walking in the spirit. They were pursuing spiritual goals. They were following the will of God. Now, what you read in this same portion of scripture is that God balances out the sufferings of the Christian life with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And it's not even worthy to be compared. It's like comparing dry dirt to a sirloin steak. You can't compare what you're going through now in this present time with what it's going to be like in the future. And that gives us hope. It gives us confidence. And it gives us a way to endure whatever we may go through when we follow the Lord Jesus. So, let me see a statement here. I'm not sure. Christians are going to physically suffer for doing the right things. He's not talking about troubles that we have, just normal life troubles like bad weather. Oh, I'm really suffering today. (laughs) Or like having problem kids or dealing with bad politicians or low wages. Paul is suffering, is referring to actual persecutions for just being a Christ follower, for just being a Christian. The word Christian is actually a title that was applied to Christ followers. And they didn't say, oh, you're one of those good guys. No, when somebody would say you're a Christian, it was to say you're like that dead guy. You're following a man who was a criminal. You're following a crucified guy. You're a Christ follower. You're a Christian. It was a derogatory term. 
So when you start to realize, wow, being a Christian is not on the positive side of popularity. Folks, we will suffer simply because we don't follow the world, simply because we don't follow religions, because we don't really follow politics and beware of being absorbed by politics. We follow Jesus. Now, the fact is this. The world is against God. And it hates Jesus Christ. I have all this. I don't know where it went, but whatever. The world is against God and hates Jesus Christ. So much of history is filled with the abuse of anyone who just followed Jesus Christ. For the first 200 years after the crucifixion, 10 million, at least 10, sometimes it's said up to 20 million, 10 million Christians were slaughtered by the Roman Empire. The Roman Colosseum was turned into a circus of horrors, just torturing Christians. The Romans didn't mind you worshiping Jesus. Just as long as you loved uh, and you worshipped Nero or any of the Caesars and that you publicly worshipped Jupiter and Mars and Mercury and Venus, as long as, yeah, you can worship your Jesus as long as you worship all our other gods. But if you only worship Jesus Christ, if you stepped away from the world and the culture and the religion that you were surrounded and you stepped away from it, it says, I worship Jesus Christ alone. When you say you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it brings severe penalty and often death. 25 to 50 million Christians are said to have been slaughtered during the ages after the collapse of the Roman Empire, during what we call the Dark Ages of the Roman Catholic Church. A man named William Tyndale <clears throat> was hunted down, captured, and publicly burned alive on a pole in 1536 simply because he had translated the New Testament into English. Another man named John Huss was arrested and put in prison for preaching Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. When he stood up and said, it's by God's grace, by your faith in Jesus Christ, are you saved? And they surrounded him and they hung him on a pole and they burned him to death. The Protestants didn't do much better either. You see, religion always wants everybody perfectly in line with them instead of with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never hurt anybody even those who opposed him. But that was in the past. What about today? Well, even today, right now, tens of thousands of Christians are hunted and imprisoned around the world, mainly in Muslim countries, by the way. But on Friday, somebody I didn't know, but a gospel preacher in Arizona was shot in the head just simply because he was on a street corner preaching that you must be born again. He's on life support right now. He has a little baby, uh, his wife. And he just stood up. He's the courage of a man standing up and telling people, you must be born again. Our sin is separated from God. And somebody pulled up, pulled out a gun, and shot him in the face. You know what? You may not like somebody preaching on the street. You may not like hearing their tone. You may not like the fact that they make you uncomfortable. But you ever had to get that spirit where you just want to punch them? That's the world. The world will hate anybody like Jesus. And that's very strange to me because I'm impressed by Jesus Christ. I'm in awe of him. But the world has a demonic hatred, doesn't, don't, don't they? I mean, it's not unexplainable how they hate him and hate what he stands for and what he calls for. He doesn't call for world peace. Do you know what he calls for? Repentance. Take your Bible, turn to John chapter 15. We'll come back to Romans in a minute. 
let's go back here. Oh, did somebody already catch up with me? I didn't even know what you were doing. <laughs> Hate it with people. This is the guy who got shot on Friday. You see, sometimes we think of history as something that happened in the past. Doesn't happen. It happens right now. We're just different. We're just in a safe country right now. I'm not going to get to that point yet. Give me a hope, just a second. John chapter 15 and verse 19. I got to get there. Listen to the words of Jesus. John 15 and verse 19. If you were of the world, if you got your life from the world, if you got your mindset, the way you think, and the way you live by the world, the world would love his own. They would love you. But because you, the believers, are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world, what? Hate you. Remember the word that I said unto you, Jesus still talking, the servant is not ever greater than his Lord. Remember this. If you are a servant of Jesus Christ, you're never going to have it better than him. Watch it. If they have persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. And if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So how are we supposed to react and feel about such treatment? I mean, you know, most of the time we think of persecution as somebody just making fun of us. But the Christian, you know, you, a Christian perspective matters. Your perspective on the way people treat you, you're at the job, you don't, uh, I was, I worked for the telephone company and every year this young lady would, would take a uh, shopping trolley full of bottles of wine at Christmas and just go out and just hand it out to everybody as a gift from the boss. And she would come, she'd go, ah, uh, not you. <laughs> because I had told her year after year, I don't drink. No, thank you. No, I'll stick with my coffee, whatever. And she would remember that and she would go and hand it off. Believe me, I wasn't always, I wasn't let off from that. My, I called them my cellmates. They were my root, my office mates. And my office mates would all snicker and go, Christian, preacher. Yeah. Oh, I was so persecuted. <laughs> but we think, oh, I'm having so much trauma. No, no, no. Once you understand, if you do ever step away and not take the alcohol, if you ever do step away and not go to the disco, if you ever do step away and just do what Jesus did and live like he lived and talk like he talked and love like he loved, you will be hated. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? Expect it. Can you just go? I guess it's supposed to happen. You live in Ireland? Guess what? Expect rain. Amen. I can't plan anything. Right. Expect it. You will be persecuted for doing right. 2 Timothy 3.12. Uh, let me take it to some of these scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Timothy 3.10, expect it. <clears throat> but thou hast fully known my doctrine. Paul talking to Timothy, he says, you've known what I've taught, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, my long-suffering, charity, my patience. What's the next verse? What's the next? The first word in verse 11. Uh, you've known my persecutions. What I've gone through, next word, afflictions, which came to me, not just once, but at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all, 
the Lord delivered me. Oh, that sounds so good. But then he says the next verse and he ruins it. Verse 12. Yay. And all they that li will live godly shall, in Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution. Expect it. Secondly, accept it. It's an honor to suffer for Jesus. Do not forget that. I'm just going to read these for time. Acts chapter 5. It says, when they had called the apostles and beaten them, that was the Sanhedrin council that had just crucified Jesus, they beat them and they commanded that these apostles should not speak in the name of Jesus. And so they let them go and they departed. The apostles, after being publicly beaten, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And the next verse says, even though they were told not to do it, they daily in the temple, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They accepted it. Rejoice in it. Now that gets hard. Rejoice in it. Matthew chapter 10. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Actually, chapter 5, verse 10. Matthew 5, 10. Matthew 5 and verse 10. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10 says, blessed are they which are what? It doesn't say blessed are they which are Christian. No. When men persecute you, then you're blessed. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, if they persecute you because you stole something, all right, <laughs> you deserve it. But if you're in trouble for being a Christian, for doing right, you're blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. That's mock you publicly. That's yell at you and scream at you and tear you apart publicly. When they shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. What should you do? Verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Circle those next words or underline them. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You're not, this is not new to you. The truth is, the Christian of the 21st century needs to embrace persecution and suffering. We've had it too good for too long. I am of the opinion that Christmas is on its way out. The Western world is, use, is, is just owning up to the fact that it's a lot of money, it's a lot of hassle. And the only thing Christmas is, it's nothing to do with Jesus anymore, amen. And so they're just going to do something else. I'm going to tell you, the Western world is turning darker, faster. And if you think the church doesn't matter and our presence here and our preaching and our soul winning and our tracks and our praying doesn't matter, you're part of the problem. It's why the world's going dark until we shine in this world. The world just goes darker and darker and it's turning the lights out. So when, you're, when you actually do something for God and you hand out a gospel track and somebody tears it up in front of you and then reports you to the boss, go, yes, finally, I actually came out of my shell. And then lastly, endure it. Because what we're reading here when we go to Romans chapter 8 is it's only for a moment. Whatever you're going through is but a moment. It's not forever especially when you compare to whatever suffering you go through as a Christian compared to the, the suffering you'll go through in eternity without Christ. 
So let me give you some thoughts here on the Christian suffering. Number one, we need to understand that when Paul talks about suffering in Romans chapter 8, he's referring not to a toothache, not to a hangnail or to bad weather. He's referring to suffering by not walking in the flesh. When you choose to not walk in the flesh, when you purposely choose to not do what your flesh wants to do, what your own nature wants to do, by not seeking the world's approval and by doing the hard thing, you will suffer when you try to do the hard thing. Examples, when I refuse to take a drink that would probably be pleasant and easy to do, and it would stop people from laughing at me, when I walk away from that crowd, that is the beginning of suffering. When I wait until marriage to have sex, guess what? That is suffering. When a Christian puts up with a bad marriage because they're Christian, that is suffering. And that's not a bad thing because you're doing a good thing. When a Christian puts up with a bad boss, a cruel boss, and you say, you know what, I'm going to keep working for this guy, and I'm going to pray for him that he gets saved, and then I give him the gospel time after time because he's worth it. When you put up with a bad boss, a bad job, a, a cruel boss even, Paul says in Colossians, and in, in, in um, um, well, the other ones, I think it's Colossians, he says to the servants, he says, serve them like they're Jesus. To the cruel when you put up with somebody who just bites your head off and is cruel to you, you do it. You're now realizing, oh, I'm suffering. This is what Paul talked about. This is what Jesus called me to do. When a Christian answers God's call and quits their job, takes their family to go far away and preach the gospel to people that did not invite them, to a people who refused to listen to them, and then that family struggles for years without much fruit, that is suffering for doing the right thing. You see, we don't know what suffering is. And Paul says, let's go to Romans chapter 8 again. I got to get back there. Paul says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. And he's, again, he's not talking about hangnail, not talking about financial problems, not talking about emotional problems. He's only talking about persecution for doing right. You need to know that whatever suffering you may have to experience by living the Christian life, not just living your life. Say, I'm suffering in Ireland because I'm from this other country and nobody understands me. I understand that. That's trouble. That's hard. But that's not the suffering that Paul is talking about. Paul's talking about doesn't matter what country you've come from. It matters what country you're going to. And if you live for that country, the world will hate you. And you need to realize that whatever you experience or even endure while following Jesus is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in me when I get to heaven. So let's read verse 18 again. And let me start off here and start off with suffering is not worthy to be compared with the future. Verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The future for the Christians described as glorious. That means bright, wonderful, honorable. We can't even imagine how glorious. First Corinthians chapter uh, 2 says, I have not seen. You've never seen it, nor ear heard. Nobody's ever talked about it. Neither hath entered into the heart of man. I can't imagine it. What God has prepared for them that just love him. 
seriously, the future is bright, folks. We actually are out of step of the world. The world lives for now, lives for the short term. We live for the long term. We live for the end game, amen? And one day, that glory will not just be revealed to us. I'm not just going to get to heaven and go, wow. <clears throat> he says something here in verse 18. He says, the glory which shall be revealed, not to us, but in us. What is that glory? It is the revealing, the manifestation of our reality. Most Christians forget who they are. You think, I'm a failure. I'm, I'm, I'm just a nobody. I, I've never had a good job. I don't own my own house. I don't even have a car. You have it all wrong. One of these days, when you get to heaven, God's going to unzip this flesh and show you what you always have been since you were born again. You are a child of God. The manifestation, the revealing of the sonship of the Christian, the, being the son of God. Um, go to 2 Peter. Hold your place there in Romans. 2 Peter, after Hebrews, James, first and 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 13. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Here's Peter describing. You're a three-part being, your body, soul, and spirit. Watch how he talks here in verse 13. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Yea, I think it meet, I think it proper, I think it's, it's fitting. As long as I am in this tabernacle, I'm not talking about a normal tent. That's what tabernacle means, not in a building. He says, in this tabernacle, he's talking about his body. As long as I'm in this tabernacle, I want to stir you up by putting you always in remembrance. I want to remind you of these things. Verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. So where are you living? You say, I live at such and such, such and such uh, street in such and such town. Mm -mm. You live in that body. That's where you live. The soul of Weston is stuck in that body. I mean, can you be glad you're not Weston? Amen. That's where we live. And he says, knowing but surely I get to put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, verse 15, I will endeavor that ye may after my, de my decease, when I die, to have these things always in remembrance. He's talking about dying when he gets to shed this outer tent that he lives in. And he's, he goes on and he says, I get to put on a new one that's eternal. So, uh, Jesus says, now let me just tell you, I, mean, oh, I want to, I get too much to say. No wonder Paul says, for me to live is, is, is Christ. That's my measure. I'm going to live like Christ. But to die is what? That's why we look forward. We don't fear death. I don't want to die. I want to see my great grandkids get married. But I know that when I die, it ain't over yet. And I, it'll only be gain for me. I have done nothing ever since losing my friends, losing my career, which I had. I'm using that word loosely. Don't, don't think I'm sad by losing. But losing all kinds of things when I got saved, whatever I lost is not worthy compared to what I've gained. Amen? No wonder Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Mm. You may think, Nothing of such honor. This is the glory that will be revealed in you. 
You may not think much of that now. Oh, I don't care about heaven. I don't care about standing before Jesus at the judgment seat. You need to. Because when you stand before him, Jesus will say, if you are ever ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. If you publicly cannot declare that you're following me, then one of these days I will publicly declare he was not worthy. That's a Christian of the glory that I want to give him now. And so he doesn't get it. You see, we will lose rewards. I can't lose my place in heaven. But believe me, I will lose my pride when I get to heaven. And I will lose a lot of the honor that Jesus Christ wants to give to his sons and his daughters. And he'll say, you blew it, Ledbetter. You say, that sounds cruel. No, that's, that's how you think because your parents coddled you. You need to wise up and grow up and go, Lord, I need to live for something higher. I need to worry about you, not my friends. You can miss out on the glory of the future. Now, verse 18, back to Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, and this is, this is a wonderful word, reckon, means that he looks up. He, he, reckoning is an accounting term. It means he adds up all of the past truths he's talked about, and he concludes this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. How am I getting there? Um. The future for the Christian, I'm not sure where this is out of the, no, no, I'm in 18. There we are. Well, maybe I'm still in there. Let me just keep going. Uh, the future for the Christian described as glorious, bright. I think I did that. Ha, ha, ha. Now, 18, 19. I get excited, folks. I just want to just stay in like a pig in the sty. I just want to enjoy the mud. Amen. It's great. Um, he goes on and he says what he's talking about. Is something that hasn't happened yet, but I yearn for it to happen. I have an earnest expectation. Look at verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature. Now watch. Up until through chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 now, he's talked about one thing he's calling the creature, which is our flesh. He's talking about that part of us, this, this creature that you look at, this Craig Ledbetter on the outside, it says, the earnest expectation of my flesh waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Something's going to happen to me in this flesh. Watch. Verse 19. Did I read 18 and 19? Yeah, the glory shall be revealed in this earnest expectation. I'll, I'll explain more in a moment. Earnest expectation means a yearning for something more. If you're earnestly expecting, it's like going through, going to a restaurant and you've made an order and, and, and you say, I want to have such and such with mashed potatoes, and I want, uh, you know, Coke or whatever. And they go off, what are you doing for the next 25 minutes while you're waiting for them? You're earnestly expecting it to come, right? All right. Paul says the Christian has an earnest expectation for something more than that they currently are. That doesn't mean that we're depressed about what we have. As a matter of fact, the best thing to be when you're in this world is be content. But at the same time, be earnestly craving for what's ahead. Uh, this is, this is the, the reaction of the Holy Spirit in you. First John chapter 3, don't go there. Let me read it. It says this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. I don't know what I'm going to be like. <laughs> but we know this, that when he shall appear, we're going to be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope, in him 
purifieth himself even as he is pure. It changes our life. This earnest expectation says, I'm not worried about my hairstyle. I'm worried about my heart style. I'm not worried about what shoes I buy. <laughs> Good night. 160 euros is too much for a pair of shoes. Would anybody agree? Good night. I'm not worried about the, the color of my house as much as I'm worried about the color of my heart. I worry about am I walking with God? Am I seeking to be pure as he is pure? Do I let him reflect on me or am I just letting the world reflect? What are we on the inside? Look at verse 19. The earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Hmm. Now we already are sons of God. We're already a child of God on the inside. No one's born a son of God. What a strange thought. We are born sinful. We must be born again. Say, I was born Irish. I didn't get you into heaven. Oh, I was born Buddhist. I was born Catholic. I was born Baptist. You must be born again. Amen. Nobody's born a Christian. We're made the sons of God by being born again. John chapter 1 verse 11 says, He, Jesus, came to this world. He came into his own and his own people received him not. But to as many as received him, just accepted him as he is. To them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's how you get born again. That's how you become a son of God. And one of these days, I right now, 43 years, I've been a child of God. I've been a born again son of God in the family of God. But one of these days, zip, what I am is going to come out. It's going to be whatever this flesh is and all this stuff that this flesh has ruined in my life and the temptations that I've given into and the struggles that I've battled against this flesh will finally be dropped. And when we talk about the verse that says, you're the light of the world, well, the Bible says you will shine. The manifestation, the turning on of the light of who you really are. Aren't you glad when you get to heaven, you won't be who you are now. A Christian is a child of God on the inside first. I mean, you look at me and it's, it's dark. That's just flesh. But the truth is, when I get my new body, the light is on and somebody's home. Amen. <laughs> You'll get that. The manifestation, the revealing of who we really are. Right now, we look poor. We look troubled. We look traumatized. We look... Um, depressed, <laughs> we, we, we look like we're few in number. But in that day, manifestation of the glory of God will be just by us being there. It, heaven is going to be stunning. This is why we want to, this is why the Christian yearns to and wants to walk and live in the spirit, wants to be full of the spirit instead of full of the flesh and full of this world. <laughs> Do you remember Jesus? When he took his disciples up to a mount that actually became known as the Mount of Transfiguration, when he got up there, they thought, okay, we're gonna, what are we going to do up here? And then Jesus was transformed. The word is transfigured. His, his, the figure of his body was changed, and it became as bright or if not brighter than the sun. Now, Jesus did not become glorious on that day. 
He just revealed his glory. Do you understand? You see, up until that moment, Jesus had body odor. Up until that moment, Jesus got hungry. Jesus was tired. He was as he was God as a man, living as a man. But then he unzipped the flesh for a little bit, showed him the manifestation of the Son of God. And one of these days, I'm so stuck on the fact that I'm tired. I'm discouraged. This flesh doesn't want to do what I want to do. I, I can't do what I want to do. <laughs> Zip. I forgot who I was. I forgot what God did to me when I got saved. Most Christians, can I be real honest, with a little C, most people who go to church want God to do something for them now. And what they are is just like Brother Trevor preached a message for the men a couple weeks back. The, the, the friends, four friends dropped down through the ceiling of Peter's house. Pity Peter's wife <laughs> having a hole in the sitting room. But the, the, they dropped their friend who, had, who was crippled with palsy, uh, dropped their friend right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and everybody says, he's going to heal him. He's going to heal him. He's going to do something marvelous. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And everybody went, <gasps> what do you say? Now, Jesus said, I know you don't think that that is, is what he needs, but he needs forgiveness. But I'll go ahead and heal him to prove that I can forgive sin. You see, when you got forgiven, you were made white as snow. The darkness was turned to day. We've been translated out of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. We just don't look like it yet, amen. And one of these days, we're going to look like it. But until that day, I think we can act like it, amen. That's what Paul is getting at. Verse 20, there in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, he says, for the creature was made subject to vanity. That's my flesh. That's my life now. I am in bondage to vanity. Not vanity like, oh, he's so vain. <laughs> but vanity in the sense of worthless. We're subject to vanity, to worthlessness. Not willingly. I didn't ask to be born, did you? Did you ask for the trouble you've got? Do you think the people in Palestine asked for the trouble they're in, Israel, the trouble they're in, Somalia, the trouble they're in, India, the trouble they're in. Do you think they asked for that? God in his wisdom and in his infinite counsel has placed us wherever we are and whatever we're going through, watch what it says. It was made subject to a wasted life. That's what vanity means, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected enslaved us is a bad word for it, but I want you to understand, he bound us in hope. So he put me in a flawed body. I know I look perfect. My muscles, my height, tall, dark, and handsome. But you see, when somebody's bored and they're a little bit slow, they're, they've got, they're crippled or whatever, doesn't matter on what spectrum you find yourself, you were made that way. And God made you that way for one purpose. He subject you to an empty life. If you have the most money, if you're Elon Musk on steroids, if you have all the money and all the power and all the gifts and all this stuff, you are subject to an empty life that ends in a grave. Amen? Elon Musk is going to go to the same type of a grave as you and me. And the point is this. Subject to vanity means I am where I am and I'm hopeless as I am so that I would have hope in Jesus Christ. 
So no matter how bitter you are, no matter how angry you are at God, no matter how angry you are at the world, you got to get over it and say, I guess I need Jesus. Amen. Verse, uh, subject to vanity simply means we are enslaved to the curses that are on this world. I mean, everything, this world is, 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 a, is, is, a, is falling apart. It's a mess. And everything that we do and live for is vain and worthless. Do you know what this, this pictures? Your life. <laughs> it's just going to be scooped up one day and dumped. Ah, you just, just listen. They won't tell you this in the other churches. They won't tell you this at home. They won't tell you this at school. But the Bible tells you you are subject, you're bound to a vain, empty life. Solomon was right. All is vanity. Life under this sun is vanity. It's worthless. You better trust somebody above the sun. You better trust Jesus Christ. So we've been made this way. So we look to God for something better, far better. So that's where he comes into verse 21. He says, we have a better hope. Look in verse 21. We've been subjected. He subjected the same in hope, verse 21, because the creature itself one day also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. We use the word death there, decay. Will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and will be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What an awesome. Look at verse 22. For we know, I hope you know this, that the whole creation, what does it do right now? It groans and travails in pain together even until now. And you know what? In summary, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Whatever you're going through, we got something better. We will be delivered from the bondage of corruption one day. What are we enslaved to? I'm enslaved to a rebellious spirit in me that is my flesh. It is sin in me that just doesn't leave me alone. I am enslaved to health problems, diseases, to growing old, and I hate it. I am enslaved to physical death. If Jesus doesn't come back, I'm headed to a grave. I'm headed to a hospital system that I don't like, and I'm headed to a grave, and I hope somebody shows up. <laughs> and it's going to be, it's, it's just, that's my life. And that's what we're enslaved to. But you know what the truth is? That all came into play because of Genesis chapter 3. Sin destroyed everything, but we will be delivered into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. What a phrase. Again, I said, I'm a child of God. And if you're saved, you're a child of God simply because you're born again. Say, well, I go to this church. Well, you can go to a mechanic shop. You can go to a hospital. You can, you're not a doctor. You, you can go anywhere and you're just not automatically what that business says. You must be born again. But that's, that's only on the inside. What I am, when I say that I'm saved, it's what I am on the inside. I am not free yet. I know spiritually I'm free, but physically you and I are not free. What I mean by that is even though I'm saved, my flesh is still tired. 
My body and my old nature still is tempted to sin. I am still, I'll say it again, I'm growing old. You got a problem with that? Yes, I got a problem with that. I cannot do what I want to do. I'm constantly limited and I physically suffer when I try to live godly. One day I will be gloriously free, not just on the inside, but on the outside. I will be set at liberty. I will know that. Listen, one of these days I'm no longer going to be tired. One of these days I'll no longer be tempted to sin. One of these days I'll never grow old. One of these days I'll be able to do whatever I want to do, knowing it never displeases God. And I'll be able to do it forever. You say, I just want to eat chocolate forever. You will be able to if you really want to. And the, the, the Bible says this, um, all creation groans for this hope. We're not, we're not wanting something airy-fairy. Everything in this universe is, is groaning, almost in harmony. When the, the Bible says groan, it means emotionally collapsing in deep pain. <clears throat> That's life. Amen? Quit following Hollywood thinking, oh, all I need to do is wink at the girl and I got her. All I need to do is just go tell my boss, give me a raise, and he's going to give it to me. Listen, life stinks. And, <laughs> and you will go home most days after work. You will sit alone at home or in the car or somewhere where nobody's watching, and you will groan for something better. Yeah. Yes. Because do you know who constantly sighs and sorrows and hurts and groans for a better life? Atheists do. Buddhists do, Mormons do, the Aborigines in Australia do, the Germans do, the Americans, the Irish do, the drunkards, the prostitute, the scientists, the politician, and Christians. We all groan. Is this all there is? I got news for you. It ain't. There's something more, folks. So what do we do while we're suffering? Look at verse 23. So whole creation is groaning in verse 22. In verse 23, he says, not only they, but ourselves also, which have ah, the first fruits of the Spirit, even when we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our... All right, so, Pastor, you saying it's okay to groan? Yes. Is it okay to be grumpy? No, but you will be. Is it okay to just want to quit? Yes. Is it okay to quit? Yes. Staying a quitter is death. But every one of us groan. Every one of us hit a wall and say, I don't like life. Amen? So what do we do while we're suffering? I tried to get that gospel track. I tried to witness on the job, and I got fired. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It happens to some. And you go home, and you just feel defeated. You're groaning. Something better is coming. Amen. While you are suffering, what does the Christian have? We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And I want you to understand this is a this is a, uh, a harvest term. It's a farming term. Uh, we have the first fruits. It's a taste. That's what it means. It's just the beginning of the Holy Spirit of God. So when you think of a huge massive 100 hectare field of grain or barley or whatever 
to be harvested. And they start harvesting that. And then the first bags come and just plop right down in front of you. And you smell that fresh grain there. And you take it home to mama. And you, you show and you say, look what we've started harvesting. And then you say, and it's only the beginning. That's what Paul is saying. The very fact the Holy Spirit is in you and he speaks and he leads you and he fills you and he comforts you and he convicts you. That's just the beginning. God gave him to you, gave the Holy Spirit to you so that you'd know there's more coming. Amen. He says, we have a sure hope. Verse 22, I'm oh, sorry, verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body, for we are saved by what? Something I don't have yet. See, if somebody says, oh, I, I you know, uh, my life is perfect. Well, have fun. <laughs> Mine ain't started yet, man. It's just barely begun. I'm looking forward to real perfection. We have hope. We have assurance. Can I say this? We cannot lose. You may lose everything else in this life. You may lose your hair, your sanity, your family, your life. But you cannot lose when you follow Jesus Christ. He makes it all up. He restores a hundredfold. Jesus will restore everything that sin has destroyed. One day, our body will be brought into the adoption. Right now, my soul has been adopted. But you know what God does? He doesn't leave anything behind. This body has to die. <clears throat> but God says, you know what? When I made you, Ledbetter, I made you a three-part being. I'm going to make sure you stay that way. And even though we got a part of you buried somewhere, <clears throat> out in Cary somewhere, in Dingle somewhere. Even though we got you out there buried somewhere, we're going to come back and bring it up. It's called the resurrection. We're going to put you back together. You will be perfectly whole. The adoption didn't finish when you got saved. The adoption, now salvation finished, but the adoption, the bringing all of you into the family of God, he brings your body back. It's called the resurrection. We have the promise of the redemption of our body one day. It'll take either place by the resurrection or by the rapture. And he'll change our vile body into something glorious. Take your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Hold your place here. Look to the right. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 21. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 3, 21. We'll start in verse 20. Philippians 3, 20. For our conversation is in heaven. What do you talk about? Our conversation is in heaven from whence we also look for the Savior. You done that lately? The Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his, what's the next two words? His glorious body. That means radiant body. His bright brightness will be changed like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue, conquer all things, even your dead body in the grave. He's able to conquer it and bring it back to himself. When Jesus saved you, he intended to adopt all of you, including your flesh. Isn't that awesome? He just got to wait for it to die. <laughs> 
That's why, you know, in Romans chapter 6 and 7, Paul talks about reckon yourself to be dead because I can live with, with, with my body alive. I can reckon it dead and ignore it and live unto Jesus Christ because I know it is going to die. And then God's going to transform it and make it just like Jesus' glorious body. And there'll be no more temptation. There'll be no more limitations. There'll be just absolute perfection. So, last point. We just need to wait for that day. Look at verse 24. Romans chapter 8, verse 24. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. All right? So if you say, I hope for something, and if you got it in your hand, that's kind of stupid. I hope for an ice cream, and you got an ice cream in your hand. It doesn't work. But if you're standing there and you're saying, I wish I had an ice cream, that's hope. And we're saved by believing in something we can't see and something we don't have yet. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it because we trust God. So, Listen, folks, people may look at us and mock at us, see us few in number. You know, I, I, I say sometimes I'm a pastor. Somebody says, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. I preach to a church. Well, how many do you have coming? Two. Because <laughs> if I said 200, they may go, oh, well, that's a lot. But you see, we do value performance, don't we? But you know what? If the... People, honestly, when they say, well, they all must be weird like you. 200, you say 2,000. It doesn't matter to most people. People will look at you. They'll see the fewness in number. Well, our church is 3,000. They may see a lot of Christians suffering, and we do. They may mock and laugh at us, but we believe in some things that we haven't seen yet because that's how faith works. You got to believe first. Say, well, if I saw God, I'd believe. No, when you see God, you will burn up. Don't wait till you see him. If you want to stand before God and then decide to believe in him, it's too late. Amen. You're going to have to trust the word of God because of the facts and the prophecies and the truths that are just evident that it's true. You're going to have to just say, I believe it. And when you believe in what you cannot see, you're saved. It changes your life. You say, that sounds so weird. Yeah, it sounds Christian. We're saved by believing things. I don't know why I say that, but I'll say it. We're saved by th believing in things we've not seen. Everything we go through, the good, the bad, and the ugly, will actually be worth it all when we see Jesus. Things don't often work out for the Christian. Think about it. And ever since I got saved, my life fell apart. You know how many times I've heard that? <laughs> Man, it really got hard when I got became a Christian. I started reading my Bible. Everything fell apart. Yeah. All they that live godly shall suffer. Persecution especially. You know, but we believe in what just is, is, is unbelievable. We've been saved from corruption from death from hell to eternal life and paul's saying it hasn't been revealed yet you can't imagine what it's going to be like don't don't neglect that life thinking this is all there is amen so we're saved just by believing if you just believe 
So be patient in the suffering. So you don't know what I'm putting up with. I may not know. I just tell you this. I've read enough church history. I've read enough of people who've really suffered. And I've heard people sing in prison, read in the Bible, for just preaching. I've known people who've lost their health just trying to serve God. They've lost their, their, their I don't know, they go through all the things that we would never want to lose. And they sing and they rejoice at the privilege of being able to serve and love God and live for God now. So whatever you're going through, just be patient. Press on, endure, praise, rejoice, even in the pain and the sorrow. That's what Christians do. The world will look at you and go, something is messed up in them. And you say, no, it's Jesus. And you'd be able to say, but I know it's not going to be this way forever. I can earnestly expect it's going to get better. Amen. So here's the conclusion. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the future. They're not forever. Those are in the future. So while we're waiting, God does a couple of things. He gives us sure hope in Jesus Christ. When I left my best efforts and I stopped trying to be good and I stopped trying to be religious and I stopped trying to keep up with the expectations of the Joneses, when I stopped looking at the world for whether what I'm doing is right or, you know, popular or whatever, and I just looked at Jesus Christ, my hope is in him now. And there's no plan B, amen? Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't decide, well, you know, if Jesus doesn't work out, I'll go to Muhammad. No, I've seen where that leads. <laughs> no, my sure hope, my confidence in somebody who even death couldn't stop, amen? So I'll put my money on him. While we're waiting, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Most of you don't know what it feels like to walk in the Spirit, what it feels like to be led with the Spirit, what it feels like to be yielding to the Spirit, what it feels like to just shut up and let Him guide you and speak to you in the still, small voice of the Scriptures. You don't know what it feels like and how wonderful it is. And if you ever get a taste of that, you'd want to be full of it. You'd want it to take over your life. Because he gave you that, that voice, that pull, that comfort, that conviction in you to say, this is just the beginning. And all we have from now on since we got saved is, I can't wait for the tables to turn. I can't wait for everything to turn out. This is why next week when we get to Romans 8.28, Paul can say, we know that all things work together for good. Because I'm not living in this flesh and letting this flesh in this old robe of flesh and this vile body decide whether God is good. I don't care if God lets me suffer. I kind of care, let me say it. <laughs> but in the end, I got to just surrender and say, Lord, if you take my health, if you take my, my, my strength, if you take my mind, it, it kind of already is gone. If, if you take my money, if you take everything else, there's one thing I have. It is well with my soul. And one day this robe of flesh will be unzipped and will drop. And then I'll get a new one. <laughs> and I'll say, why did I ever worry about that thing? Are you ready for the future? Are you looking at the future and saying, oh, I got time. I can get saved. I can, I can, I uh, can. When, when I get a little older, I'll, I'll repent and I'll get saved. I'll, I'll finally look at my life and say, I'm finally sick of it. And I want to live the Christian life. It'll probably be too late. Everybody cries that out in hell. There are no, 
unreligious people in hell. They're all crying out, angry at God, saying, God, why won't you listen? I'll get saved now. It's too late then. And Christian, are you ready for the future? Are you looking forward to a time where you say, what are we going to be doing in heaven? You will not be thinking about now. You won't go, oh, I miss the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. That's a good parallel. You won't be missing anything of this old life. So live for that life. Stand with me. Let's bow in prayer. Father, as we bow, <clears throat> I do pray for your Holy Spirit to now grip somebody's heart. And humble them. The thing that we need this day is a broken heart. About the arrogance and the pride that we have in this life. We have been a very free people for a long time. The Western world has been blessed. And our laws have given us liberty. Mainly because they were based on your book, your Bible, the laws of God. But times are changing. And one of these days we're going to say like Paul, the sufferings of this present time are real. And they hurt. And they're hard. But what we've learned today is they're not worthy to be compared with the glory ahead. So, Lord, whatever we've been holding on to, whatever we've been thinking was more important than our walk with you and being spiritual people, whatever we've been thinking is, is, is what we've got to focus on, whether it's career or even our family, if we hold anything out as more important than our walk with you. We've missed it. Lord, there are people who will miss heaven just by a few inches because they know these truths in their head, but they've never believed them in their heart. They've never accepted a Jesus they haven't seen. They've never believed in a heaven they haven't seen. They've never hoped for something that they haven't seen yet. But today, God, would they hope and believe and trust in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection, because of the truth of the Bible, because you've spoken to us today. And so, God, I ask in this room that there be some people who'd be encouraged in spite of the suffering and that we would not worry about the suffering of our health as much as we worry about suffering for being a Christian and say, Lord, help me not be distracted, but on fire for God now. Because this is what I've got. I've, all I've got to give you, Lord Jesus, as a living sacrifice, is my now. And if it costs me something, praise God. Hallelujah. You're worthy and you're worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.